Yeah. So my, <laughs> that was loud. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I started, well, and, and, you know, hook me off stage if I get too long winded here, but I, I'll kind of chat until we see some hands raise or until you and I banter back and forth. Um, but I'm a full-time practicing um, OBGYN in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and grew up in Northern Minnesota, was kind of steeped in, in, you know, the Midwestern life. And I had three older siblings and kind of followed in some of their tracks. None of them went into medicine, but went to similar schools. And I thought in college, I wanted to go into medicine. And then I lived in India for a year and I actually had applied for med school, actually MD, PhD before I went to India. And when I came home, I did independent research there. I was really, um, I think my world had been shaken upside down from, you know, living in Northern Minnesota, not far from the Canadian border, and then living out of a backpack for a year and working in the slums of India. And uh, so I pulled all my med school applications. And um, that was probably one of the first times in my life where I had really been shaken. Um, and I took some time and I worked in a stem cell research lab and I just waited tables at night at an Asian restaurant. And I was so happy. I was so happy doing that work, but there was something about clinical and being with people that I really missed. Okay. So you guys, I have two littles and I hear that there may be world war three out there. So I'm just warning you if someone comes to the door, they know I'm supposed to be coaching, but, um, and I hear a mama really loud. <laughs> so please excuse me if something gets interrupted. Um, so I, um, ended up deciding, no, I needed to do something clinical, went to med school and, um, really thought I wanted to do like hemonc or something, you know, after third into third year, knew I, no, I didn't want to do hemonc. I wanted to do something very surgical. And, um, but I missed the relationships with people. So something in my life kept coming back to relationships. Right. And, um, so that's how I settled on OBGYN one moment. You might need to <laughs> take over for a second here. One second. Let me just mute. Hey, everybody. For those that just joined, this is Dr. Krista Olson-Kern, who's a mother and a gynecologist and a life coach. Um, so she's just telling us her story of how she got into life coaching, how she got here. And then first come, first serve. If you want to, if you want to be coached by somebody besides me and um, Jessica, for a chance, <laughs> that might be interesting to you. Run run by a, the same scenario by her. See what, see what she get out of it. Um, I think it'd be very, very cool to run same like issues by different coaches because you can go in different places with it. So first come first serve when she's done with her chat, if you want to raise your hand to get coached. Okay. And she's back and seen. Good job, mom. It's life with children. And my husband was like, oh, I forgot you were on. And you know, we got kids hitting each other out there. So um, anyway, I will, I will pull in my conversation. I won't go so long-winded, but ended up um, going into OBGYN. Love it. Um, and then through my life, actually through residency, I'd gotten married um, and my husband ended up being um, an alcoholic and a drug addict. And I didn't know about that. So kind of went all through that with residency and um, he ended up dying of his disease. So I went through kind of loss of a spouse and I had signed off marriage for years, got into work. And um, what I don't realize, what I didn't realize until the backside is all these amazing traits that make us physicians almost broke me, right? Is being the perfectionist, the imposter syndrome, the workaholism, the arrival fallacy. I was steeped in all of them and I didn't realize it till the backside. So what ended up happening was um, I got married 
second time and had gone through infertility and a lot of other things along the way. And, um, I ended up being over 250 pounds and I had a lot of shame around it. I didn't know how to solve it. And so I ended up getting into a coaching program to lose weight. I didn't even know it was a coaching program. You guys, I was just like, I got to lose weight and I don't know how to do it because everything I've tried doesn't work. (laughs) So I lost over a hundred pounds. And then I was like, Oh, (laughs) there was something in there that kind of made the rest of my life better. And, um, it was all the thought work. And so that's not kind of how I got into life coaching. Um, so I still work full time. I was the president of, um, the women's health division, which was 50 OBGYNs. And I sat on a board of, um, like 350, um, physicians until just a month and a half ago. So that was the other part of what I did for four and a half years. Um, but now I work full time. I do a lot of minimally invasive GYN surgery. I do that about a day and a half a week and then full clinic the other days. Um, I'm a mom to two littles. I'm married. Um, and I'm living that sandwich generation. If the rest, if any of the rest of you are between aging parents and young, young children. So I get to be a completely open oyster for any of you to bring up topics you want to coach on. Um, my jam is trying to get people to live their true life. Basically, you know, many of us get into medicine, I think almost on like this hamster wheel of that. I call it the emotional oasis Uh, it's going to get better when we get into fellowship. And then when we make an attending, and then when you buy the job, and then when you get a new partner, and then when you have this much money in the bank, like da, 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 da. And then you constantly are like, well, but when is it going to get better? Right. So that's one of my big things that and weight loss. And then I just do all kinds of other coaching too. So that was really long winded Kelly. (laughs) (laughs) And I talk, I have to ask what happened to the MD PhD? Um, so what ended up happening, you know, I did, um, the research for two years, um, I actually done a lot of NK cells. So if any of you do hemonc or breast surgery, I did a lot of the NK cell research for immunotherapy for breast cancer. Um, but you know, what ended up happening is I decided so many of the MD PhDs I worked with in research did like 70 to 80% research and like 20 to 30% clinical. And I liked it the other way around. <laughs> So I'm still actually, we have a a new study that we're looking at with um, a large private oncology group here in town that we're just structuring right now, looking at HP vaccination um, with cervical dysplasia. So we're still creating studies in private practice. Yes, it can happen, everyone. (laughs) So I get to dabble in some of that a little bit. I get to dabble in research, but I really, like if I had to drop anything, I mean, if I, if I, if I only could hold on to one thing, it would really be clinical medicine. Like I love it. I love the OR. I just, I love, I love practice. So, so that's that. who I am. I was asking, cause I was a, I was a mud fud too. Oh, were you? Yeah. I dropped out after two years. Ah, interesting. I'm looking back on it now in my head. And I think I was just like, what the fuck am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> Well, when I, I think I, I do can be an MD PhD doesn't mean you should be an MD. Should. Yes. Thank you, my friend. So there goes the hamster wheel. Right. Um, and I think that's so, and for me, I'll raise my hand. That was so much of what I did. It was the same thing with, um, OBGYN as I matched into fellowship in RE at Cincinnati. And I actually, I actually pulled it. I didn't go. And it wasn't until that point that I really realized that I, that was one of my propensities, right? Like the people pleasing the, the workaholism, like what, well, of course, if that's the next step we can do, let's do it. Yeah. Just because you can, doesn't mean you should. Should. Mm-hmm. Totally. Huge. 
I actually oh. just used that twice. I was like two two things I was very interested in doing for 2023. Then I went to this Eckhart Tolle retreat in Hawaii and dropped both of them. And I'm mm -hmm. like, just because I can doesn't mean I should. And I feel like so much calm over not doing it now. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think, I think, um, you know, my, my bias is that there's these traits that really breed us well to get into medicine and to get through training. Um, but they don't serve us well to live a lifestyle in medicine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I think two, two common things that I see in this group a lot, uh, are, and I'm going to give them both to you to see like what, where you want to go with this, um, people pleasing and beating ourselves up. Absolutely. And not seeing, not seeing that that's what it is. Yeah. Um, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, people pleasing, which interestingly, if, as I've started doing a little bit more reading in, um, trauma and trauma informed coaching tends to be a response to some of us in trauma. And it tends to be a response to those of us who trained, I mean, I think in current training probably still too, but particularly, you know, 10 years ago or before, um, in sort of that Socratic training where, you know, you got to be kind of emblazoned in front of people is what would happen is if you people please, if you really look at the evolutionary response, right, you people please, because if you didn't people please, you know, what was coming on the backside. So it was kind of a survival technique for some of us. And, you know, I can see it in, in kind of earlier things in my life where it came from, but I think it, 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 it comes in medicine, right? And it comes when you have a patient, it's hard to have people not want to like you, right? Um, it's hard to work, you know, with a team of, I don't know how many you guys had in your residency crew of them not liking you, right? I mean, you're, you're a close knit group and you're working tens of hours a week together in tight situations. And so there's these people pleasing tendencies that we think maybe is just a trait of ours, but it actually evolves to be like so much more severe because it's almost evolutionary in our brain, like survival, right? What was it? People pleasing. And what was the other thing, Kelly, you said? Beating ourselves up. Yes. I was a pro at that. Are you good at that, Kelly? I, I was good at it. I'm, I'm, in recovery. Yeah. And I, what I would like to say is I, I'll join you in recovery, but I slip out of it once in a while, right? I go back to those neurological thought habit patterns, right? And even my husband now will call me on it because I'll say something. He's like, oh, well, what would you say if I, you know, I'll say about myself, right? Like, what would you say if I said that? Example, this morning we were out taking family pictures at like a holiday thing. And, um, I said something about, well, next year, I think I'll do this better. I, I said some comment like that. And he said, so how would you feel if I turned to you and I said, Krista, next year, you should do this better. <laughs> and I was like, yes, point taken. <laughs> Thank you. Have you guys talked a lot about kind of the, the importance of the voice you use with yourself, Kelly? Uh, not, I mean, not recently. Why don't you talk about it? Yeah. So this was something I did. Um, actually it was coming right out of the pandemic. So do you, have you talked, I'm guessing you all talk maybe about Brooke Castillo, the, the coach of life coach school. So I spent a day with her in Austin it would have been like a year and a half ago. And, um, it was a small group of us and I usually can keep it pretty well together. And she came around to me and she's like, well, why are you here today? 
I just lost it. <laughs> I couldn't stop crying. <laughs> She's like, well, there must be something there, I guess. And I was like, yeah, there is. I was like, it's, it's just, it's everything. I said, it's everything right now. Right. And what I had come to was, you know, I think even though we're a coach and we're trained in our brain to watch these things, we still go back to our old patterns. And I always say life is sort of this, um, we've, we've got a reserve, right? And what will happen is when you start piling on the things, <laughs> your, your, your tolerance gets to be less. Right. And so I, I don't think I realized it was coming through the pandemic as full-time practicing, having, trying to get two littles through the pandemic. I was one of the first hundred um, cases of COVID in Minnesota. I have permanent lung damage. Um, you know, so living through that and I didn't realize that my tolerance was so low and I'd gone back to a lot of these old patterns I used to do. Right. And so my, after I spent that day with her, my job really was how do I work on cultivating my relationship with myself? And so looking on at this as, you know, you don't, you don't just, <laughs> have thoughts. It literally is a relate. And you guys, this sounds so woo woo until you spend some time with yourself about it, but you really have this relationship with yourself. It's a constant dialogue. And most of us really live with a completely bitchy roommate in there. Right. And who wants to live in that setting? And so what happens is you get this kind of acrid environment that you're living in until you really examine it. You know, and if you look at some of the neurocognitive research on it, I mean, it has as much net effect on your brain as living in an abusive relationship. Wow. Right? Because, I mean, I don't know, Kelly, do you, do you ever share thoughts with them about things that go through your brain or, 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 um, I always call them cow paths because I grew up in the farm country, but like neuro super highways, I don't know what you want to call them. <laughs> Cow paths? That's what I call them neurological cow paths. Right, so if none of you are from the, the, the farm country, Kelly, you're from up north, right? Yeah, I'm from Duluth. You know what a cow path is, right? Uh -huh. Yeah. So you go out into a pasture and cows, they walk the same path. There are literally like little dirt paths, huge pasture, all this capability to have whatever path they want, little, little tiny dirt paths, right? So I always think about those in my brain. I'm like, okay. Your habitual thought patterns are cow paths. As soon as you get on the dirt trail, that's how you're going. In order to create a new neurological pathway, it's like you're out in a, wherever you live, whether it's a rainforest or a jungle or a prairie like me, is you have to be out there literally with a scythe, with like one of those little sharp blade choppers, concentrating on where this new path is going to be. <laughs> right? That is the only way you develop new neurocognitive pathways. You have to practice them. Yeah. And our perfectionist kicks in then because it needs to happen now and it needs to be perfect. Yeah. And we beat ourselves up about it because why can't this be done and perfect yet? Yeah. 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 It's exactly what we see in weight loss, right? Because it should have been done yesterday. Why can't it be done faster? Because you think you're going to feel so much better when you're at that numerical value or you've got the new fellowship job or you've got whatever that you really want to happen fast. 
But the thing is, is unless you create a system that's sustainable, unless you create new pathways that are going to keep you there, actually don't even do it because <laughs> you're just going to yo-yo back, right? Yeah. And I think that, I mean, I always, it always comes back to awareness, like awareness of the thought, awareness that you are doing what you're very, what's it's easy. I just say like, you know, I, I talk a lot about brain calories, mm -hmm. like don't, don't burn your brain calories on that. Or of course you're doing that. Cause it's so easy. You're not burning a lot of calories. Yeah. You know, like things that are easy. Yeah. Well, it's that, that basic motivational triad, right? So humans always want pleasure. We don't want pain and we want the fastest route. We're mammals. Easy. <laughs> um, I was listening. I actually like went on Netflix to watch Jonah Hill's documentary of his therapist. It's, it's like oh. buzzing right now. It's called Stutz. Huh. And he talks about this, the bitchy voice, and he calls it fact, the factor X. Mm. He draws a little picture of like, it's factor X's job to keep you safe, to mm -hmm. keep you from going. You know, it's like, it's so nice. Everybody talks about the same damn stuff in different ways. Like, and it's like yeah. whatever image works best for you of like, everybody's got a factor X that does that. Absolutely. And then like, do you let that control you or do you realize it's there? And then you learn mm -hmm. tactics to, to go around it. To work around it. Yeah. So it's, you know, your inner voice, your inner critic, your factor X, whatever it is we want to, you want to call it. Right. And it, it exactly that it's evolutionary responses to make you not have to be at risk. Right. Because it, if it can convince you to stay in your, your place where you live and not take risk, not try a new way of eating, not try to change your life somehow, not um, think that maybe something is possible for you. You're not going to put yourself at risk. I mean, it's that evolutionary thing we talk about going out of your cave, right? Like who's going to come get you when you move out of safety, right? And so it, it, it when you can start understanding it like, oh, it was from when I used to live on the tundra and there were woolly mammoths, right? Hmm. And now 90% of our pain is emotional pain. We're, we're not going to be eaten. Just going to feel really shitty. Well, yeah, it's first realizing it's not true. And then I think of the guy from The Hangover and he's like, but did you die? Right. <laughs> totally. You don't have to die, more than likely. But it will feel like you are. You feel, feel shitty. But then that's the thing. Feelings. And then, you know, we've talked a lot about feelings of like, we got trained to only want to feel the good feelings. Yeah. And we do so much to just avoid a shitty feeling. And then we're like, what if we just feel a shitty feeling? Cause that's what we maybe should be feeling right now. Yeah. And realizing the worst case scenario is just a shitty feeling and it's yep. totally safe to feel yeah. it. like it's profound. Yeah. Very counterculture. Yeah. It, well, it's so counterculture. I mean, what do we do with, with our kids? Like, is, stop crying, stop crying, feed them some food, bump up their dopamine so they feel good, right? Because they don't know how to soothe themselves. And then they all grew up learning how to self-soothe with technology or food, right? Um, so how do we break that cycle? And it's that exact thing of, um, yes, hundreds of years ago, the, the neurochemical response that our brain is having to emotional pain was important for us to avoid because we, we would die. It was physical problems, right? It's just, we don't have that now. It's so rare, like less than 10% of our, 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 our neurochemical discomfort is physical pain. So it's, it's, it's coming from that place of safety. Love it. Yeah. Put their hands up. Anybody want to come on and get coached or ask questions in the chat box if you want? We we are I am an open book. I'm guessing Kelly's kind of an open book, but I am completely an open book. They're not here for me. 
anything goes. <laughs> it's fun though watching kids now do this. So my kids are um, six and seven. And, you know, they actually have feelings class three days a week at their school. Mm -hmm. They have a feelings teacher. And it's just part of their curriculum. They're like, yeah, we had feelings today. <laughs> it's like, okay. They call it social, social, emotional teaching, SET, social, emotional teaching. And um, I went through this with my daughter on Black Friday. We were at Target. And because um, I talked to her a lot about, let's just let the feeling, just let it come. We don't need to change it. So it was um, a complete meltdown in the lip gloss aisle. Because we wanted the pack that tasted like soda pop, but then we also wanted the clear ones with the wand, right? We only had so much money and we had to decide what to do. It was 20 minutes, you guys. And finally, she got to this point where she was, I mean, completely unglued, losing it. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to give in, Hazel. Like, this is the option. You have to decide. Finally, she just looked at me. She's like, I just have to feel my feeling and I need a hug. <laughs> I just need a hug. And I said, right answer. Let's hug it out. Let's come on, let's do it. Right. But, and then once she, I mean, you could almost see that processing happening in her. Right. And so to be able now as an adult watching, like, you know, what happens to all of us, even those of us who don't understand it of, you know, it's rare that feelings, intense feelings stay that intense for more than 15 to 20 minutes. Right. Yeah, I think it's a game changer. When what I've started doing since coaching is asking people how they feel mm -hmm. instead of how they think. And a lot of times we'll just we'll tell you what we think when somebody asks you how you feel because we don't know the difference. Exactly. But I, I've asked, I'll ask my kids. They'll be like, oh, "How do you feel about that?" And I'll get something from them that's totally different than what I was assuming was going on. Yep. And so I'm like, I get so much more information when I ask people how they're feeling about something. You leave with the feeling, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think helping them to build that vocabulary, because I will say until I um, got into coaching, I think I was, I will say I was emotionally delayed. <laughs> I think I had like five feelings. How are you? Good, sad, bad. Surgeon, I, 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 my big joke is that surgeons have, have one feeling and it's. <laughs> Maybe it's because I was a gynecologist. I do more gynecology than. <laughs> I had a few more, but not that many more. It was mostly tight until about 2021. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I know. Yeah, it's a game changer. You know, this whole feeling thing. I know. But, like, but again, it's very counterculture to medical training, to surgical training. Like what we're really taught is deal with the situation, move on. There's somebody else that needs you, you that needs you and mm -hmm. wasn't involved in this trauma. Like, exactly. So we just, we, we pile all this trauma and we never get taught in our training how to process that, how to feel our feelings, how to be oh. sad, how to hold space for a colleague who's sad. Like we never get any of that. M maybe we do now I'm 10 years, 10 years out, but it's like when you get into that trauma informed coaching stuff and you realize the trauma that healthcare providers go through yeah. with zero help in releasing yeah. any of that. I had actually, I was on with a, a couple of surgeons yesterday, we were talking and they were trying to, they've been at coaching for five and a half years, all different kinds of coaching groups. And they keep coming to this thing when they get an urge, both of them saying, you know what? I just, I don't know what's coming from that urge. It just keeps coming up that I'm bored. <laughs> well, it could be that you're bored, 
But what if bored is just an excuse your brain doesn't have to think anymore? <laughs> doesn't need to come up with it because they're like, I'll, I'll start being busy, but I still have the feeling. And I was like, so I think we need to let that go. But we talked about this. I said, do you give yourself credit for what you do everything? And like, so for all of you that are on this call, and I would say for almost any physician, but for particularly those of us in surgical specialties, I always like to remind us that about a five minute slice of any moment of our day would be a significant emotional event in anyone else's life that they would remember until the day they left this planet. Right? Like almost anyone else, like you sit down before you go into a surgery and you consent people that they could die. There's not a lot of people that have that conversation every day and you do it multiple times. You cut open people's bodies. You put them to sleep with anesthesia. I mean, you know, there's times where it's high risk. You're maybe, you know, an OB, we're managing two people at once. You're doing emergency surgeries. The things that we're talking about and doing and the concentration that we have. And then all of a sudden you're just supposed to like wash your hands and stop at Target and pick up the cheddar cheese and laundry soap. Right? And one of, one of my coaching clients, her, until we started coaching, she was like, well, I just keep a Kleenex box in the back of my car. I said, well, that's great. Well, what do you do with that? Well, I just, my, my commute home is seven minutes. So I just cry between home and, and, the, and the hospital. And then that's what I do. <laughs> it's like, it's a start, right? But it's really understanding this whole basket, right? It's, it's not, and then, and then you have life with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. Like one of my, and I hadn't thought about this came up to me. Some people here might know the story. I might have pulled it already. Um, came back to me with coaching and the and trauma training is when I was a general. I was year two doing general surgery, and a pregnant woman had a had a what's it called amniotic embolism. Yeah, amniotic fluid embolism. Yeah. So she delivered the baby. The baby lived. She did not. I was involved in cracking the chest and pumping her heart mm-hmm. me and my chief chief resident we were across from each other i remember looking in his eyes and we we're pumping her heart and she ended up not making it mm-hmm. and you thanks yeah like, like it's so crazy and we as the general surgery team made fun of the ob resident for not coming in the next day because she couldn't handle it mm-hmm. that was our view our view was she couldn't handle it She's too weak or she's not strong. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's work to be done. She needs to be here. And our coping, like our collective group bonding was Mm -hmm. to pick on that person for needing to take a nap. And I look back on it now and I'm like, number one, nobody helped us promise or like process the extreme trauma of your hands on a heart that didn't survive. Number two, then we make fun of the person who just needs a day off, whether she got any more help than that. Yeah. Right. And like what we do as a collective group mm-hmm. to exclude other people. Mm-hmm. And like we think of that and it's like we don't think of those stories all the time, but they come up and they remind us like we were trained yeah. to be the way we are. It's and if the we're not conscious of that and like the immense power and kind of understanding like, wow, Kelly, you've had your hands on a heart of somebody that didn't make it. Yeah. Right. And like how I, how we were protecting ourselves by like making fun. Like we, we were telling each other what was the right way to go. It was to keep mm-hmm. going. Mm-hmm. Right. Don't slow down. Don't slow down. But I think a lot Close of the door. 
like there's more stuff to do, right? There's a list. But I think a lot of people in this group, like we, t people have insight now of like the trauma of our mm -hmm. training and how we want to be conscious of like understanding that and like being more purposeful yeah. in our, in our life now. Yeah. How do you lead your life and how do you, how do you change your personal culture? And then that may or may not have an impact to, you know, your culture and your group or, or your partners. We were talking about this with this same um, group yesterday. Um, the surgeon said, you know, she had a case going, it was like the day or two before and um, it got bumped and, you know, she was like the old me would have always flipped a gasket. And she's like, I had a resident with me because then it was going to delay my, my afternoon and my clinic and, you know, all the things. And it was a 22 year old that had an emergent bowel curve and, you know, it was a reason it should be bumped. And she said, she just turned to her resident and she said, well, I'm really glad I'm not that 22 year old and I'm glad I'm not the mother. And so we're going to sit here and we're just going to enjoy a cup of coffee and our day is going to be a little bit longer. And I guess the resident just turned and looked at her and was like, whoa, <laughs> you know, and, and this physician was like, yeah, I never would have had that opinion, but like the same outcome is going to happen. You're going to get bumped. Right. So do we sit in for our own selves, right. For our own internal culture, do we sit and keep propagating the toxic environment? Right. And a little bit of some emo emotional childhood of playing a victim to the situation, right? Well, it's so easy. We've been doing it for years. That's all we do, right? It's so easy to do it. Mm -hmm. It's actually yeah. harder to do what she did. When, when Again, like you're trying to make that new path. But, yeah, your new cow path. <laughs> you're out there chopping down the long grass. It's exhausting. Yeah. You don't want your, and your brain does not want to do it. It's easier to place the blame on something else. Yeah, I did. I was gonna post this in the group this week, and I didn't. But I was in the OR just doing like a standard case, and the scrub tech is new. She is young and green, and the circulator, the circulator is like new to the OR. She was coming from a different department, like that she'd mm -hmm. been in for a long time. But like they didn't know where stuff was. They didn't know anything. And like mm -hmm. here I am. I'm like, this is the most generic average case we do, right? Mm -hmm. and like you just watch your brain go and you just breathe just watch your brain go and you breathe and you like didn't say anything case got done and I left and I was like that case was brought to you by coaching my friends right like, I would like and to be able to be like that was not the Kelly of pre-coaching right I would have just like I would have been like snide and like kind of like oh my god it's the simplest case why don't you learn where the stuff is yeah like, or passive aggressive. If you're in the Midwest, you'd be passive aggressive. <laughs> That's how we would do it. <laughs> you'd be nice and then talk bad about them afterwards. <laughs> right. Like I would like I was had a lot of insight of like that was brought to me by coaching. I mm -hmm. would, that would not have just been like Kelly. And I think that's a lot of like resistant to the coaching of like, don't tell me to be different. Don't try to change me. Don't try to blah blah blah. And then you realize like we're just trying to make you the best person you can be we're not trying to right. nobody tried to change me with me doing coaching no but i've i'm changed and i'm like i kept my shit together it's awesome well and it has to i mean i think it comes from that place of you also have to make that cognitive decision to want to change 
right? And that's really where, where it begins because there has to be a, that desire and then the belief that it can actually happen. Right. And I, I think sometimes we are so exhausted in medicine that maybe there's not a desire because it is a little easier to blame and outsource. Secondly, I don't think within the majority of the culture, we know that there is even an option to function more humane and differently, right? But my big thing is, I don't know if you all are seeing this. I mean, here in the Twin Cities metro area, we've lost nine physicians to suicide in the last two years. Nine. Nine. So my big thing is, is it's no longer an option not to talk about it. It's more of like, this needs to be integrated and how do we talk about it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, I always thought, again, like my my biggest claim to fame in the coaching world is like, I came into this kicking and screaming and being super skeptical. But like, <laughs> I would see people and you'd hear about these people, like these older people who will say like, I used to be an asshole. I used to respond <laughs> differently. I used to blah, blah, blah. And I would pay attention to them. And yeah. I'd be like, what's what's up with them right Mm -hmm. like how does that work and I was always very curious about them like I'm very curious about the like I was in prison and now I'm a Buddhist monk like I'm very curious oh it's sort of like born again-ish kind of thing right like like they're my favorite favorite. I want to know everything about (laughs) you know you think like this is just how you are and it's Mm -hmm. like no those are just your your cow paths you're gonna keep saying it now Kelly (laughs) You can see it in your brain. You're like, it's just my cow path. Cow path. <laughs> anything, anything you can, you know, you get to the point of like this awareness stuff of like, it all does become at a certain point kind of silly, right? And if you can laugh about your cow paths, like you're doing pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the more we can um, actually help each other to take ourselves off of a pedestal, the better we are. I mean, I tell all of my clients, I'm like, you guys, you ain't, None of us are superheroes and we wish they would take all of, I don't know what your guys' beliefs are, but I'm like, I wish they would take all of that off because we all really are humans with just really, really highly, highly developed skill sets. But inside, like we still have the same needs and desires. And so once we can say, oh my gosh, there's going to be no fault if someone looks at me and says, you know, she needs this help, some kind of help, or she's struggling with this. You have internal struggles and needs and desires and brokenness, just like every other human does. Right. And it's, I think it's a a really difficult part of that medicine culture of there's almost some shame in talking about where we have faults. Right. And that's why I love the physician only coaching space because it's where we're able to sit back and say, Hey, (laughs) I ain't got it together. And I really leaned on a lot of people to help me live that life I want. And when things get a little creaky in my thinking or my, my outcomes, right. I, I get help too. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Do you think there's something about the culture of the twin cities that makes that nine so high? You know, I don't know if it goes along with like seasonal affectiveness or whatever. Most of them haven't been in the winter. Cause I've even thought about that. Um, 
I I don't know. I mean, I I've just heard nationally that it it is so high. Um, you know, there's there's no one magic bullet reason that I can come up with, but all that I know of had one in particular was very tethered to um, postpartum depression. And she had gone through it with her first child. Yep. And I'm not saying anything. I mean, there's a foundation founded on this physician. So I'm not, I'm not divulging anything on any of these physicians. Um, you know, it, well, I don't know if any of you know, Michelle Shestovich. Um, she's a coach and her sister Gretchen, um, who was a radiologist, she died um, of suicide and, um, or by suicide. Um, so, you know, I don't know that there's anything special, but all of them did have, um, you know, a majority component being work and the stress of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's high. But I think, I mean, I think so much of it is it, it is our unique skill sets that get us there, right? That you get to that place that you, you've got that perfectionist tendency, you've got that people pleasing, you've got the overworking. And unless we're able to kind of look at that and examine it and say, how do I, how do I, how do I say that's okay, but not at the degree I'm practicing it to. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, it's a superpower that will lead to your own demise. Mm-hmm. Right. Like there's that like successful demise. Yep. What, and know, I'll say in 2018, I was, I was right at about that peak, ready to go down the other side. Right. So how do we start grasping that in our own lives, even before you get to a peak where you're just like, this is crazy business, how I'm living <laughs> or even reaching out to colleagues and just asking like, Hey, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. You know, what's important. You know, one thing we've been working on a lot in the last few months um, in a group I'm in is a lot on what is purpose? What is mission? Are you really tethering to your purpose? Or are we grabbing all kinds of goals out there and randomly going after them? How does that align with what it is you want to do? Yeah. And if you want to talk about like the role of busyness, because I, I mean, I think we all, we know how to be busy. We know how to do multiple things. Being busy gets us successful. Mm-hmm. But I think the same thing, it can be our demise, the same, mm-hmm. like, yep, good. Look at every, yeah. no. Yeah. So, you know, and I, I think it's me, I'm going to tell you my own opinion. Cause I've been telling you a lot of opinions today. Um, <laughs> but I think it's harder to be not busy yeah. for those of us. I think so too. So that's a big challenge that I oftentimes give my clients is how can we learn to be uncomfortable with being calm and quiet because for most of us it doesn't exist and when I first started practicing it I mean it even sometimes still I'm much better with it it used to feel almost crushing like like I kind of wanted to like peel my being cool we're doing like you know I mean I was I'm the I'm the you know classic like I got if I'm watching tv I gotta be knitting and having a podcast in and checking my phone and doing five things at once right because what busy does is it allows you not to sit with yourself. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't built an amazing committed relationship with yourself, it kind of sucks to sit with someone that you don't like. Yeah. Right. I think and if doing you... stuff, I saw this a lot. So I just, I went to the Eckhart Tolle like retreat mm-hmm. in Hawaii 
And a couple of physicians were like, is there CME? And it's like so fascinating because you're like, you need to get something out of everything that you do, huh? Like, right. you got to get this. Is there a certificate? Like, there's always something to be gotten out. Of, and it's like to do something just to do it. Just for you. Just to do it with like nothing to show Yeah. to the outside world. Right. But like there was another LCS coach there that was was telling me the story. And she's like, yeah, yeah. A couple of doctors didn't, you know, they wanted to come, but there's no CME. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, we all need to get CME. I understand. Yeah. If, you, if you don't do something you're interested in because there's no like external gain to it, there's yeah. something to like the awareness of that is powerful. Yeah, exactly. And understanding that our brains are so programmed that everything in life that we're doing needs to be for like some external purpose. And I always remember like, <laughs> you get, you get one go around you guys and like a job, a calling, like all that's kind of something, but like, you're really put here to be in amazement and enjoy this amazing life. Like, what if you just crack the door to joy once in a while? What if that's okay? Yeah. What if there doesn't have to be an ROI tied to every moment of your day? What if you were put here to become the best version of yourself or to figure out who you are or yeah. to figure out what your gifts are? Yeah, right? Like, I've been playing a lot with that. Of like, what if I'm put here to become my own best friend as much as I can? Yeah. You know, the whole thought of like, you're with you more than anybody else. You're going to, you were born with you and you're going to die with you. You're going to be with you more than anybody else. Yeah. It's like, what, what if you're here to be okay with you? Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and have fun along the way, feel it, get angry along the way. That's okay. Be frustrated. It's fine. But being in that relationship with someone that you can't stand to be in the room with creates busyness. Right. It's, I mean, think about children, right? Children are so fine not being busy. They haven't created this relationship with themselves of not enoughness of you're so imperfect, right? Of this sort of, um, this internal dialogue with themselves at that age, most children, I mean, maybe some have different diagnoses, but, you know, they can oftentimes just have fun, you know, rolling around in the backyard on grass and looking at little things like they don't have to be so busy and distracting their brain. So they don't have to be alone with themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. And if you look in research, most of that starts that busyness, that needing to be stimulated from something external. A lot of that starts developmentally in that prepubescent age where judgment starts coming in. So totally. I was doing a, um, you guys, we have like 20 minutes left. If you want to get coached, raise your hand. <laughs> I, mean, I know you're highly entertained, so we'll just keep talking, but raise your hand if, if you need something. We um, love coaching. I went to like this paint, you know, the, the creativity paint. Oh, paint so fun. So we we went and made Christmas ornaments last week. Oh, we so cute. And we went with another family and the other kids were like, I'm not doing this good enough. Mine isn't good. This isn't good enough. And like, my kids weren't saying that. And for me to be like, this comes from the parents. Yep. They've put it there. Like, 
we're just gonna paint some shit and have some fun and like of course you're not good at it because like do you spend your life painting ceramic ornaments no so like you shouldn't be good at it like we're just, we're just there to have fun and like to hear these kids talk it, it just struck me i was just like oh it comes from the people around it can come from the people around you or your parents Right. Yeah, I think I don't know about you, Kelly, but I look back into it. And I mean, so much of that, I don't think intentionally, but it came a lot from my family of origin. I mean, my mom's like the perfectionist Martha Stewart that every Christmas package was like perfectly matched with the bow and the ribbon and da 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 da, right? And they were very agrarian. We didn't have um, much growing up at all. Um, but there was this like work ethic, like, basically I mean they don't say the words but it's basically like life is not meant to be enjoyed like unless you're unless you're like producing something or being purposeful I mean I don't know if any of you grew up with this but like my parents they're almost 80 the thought of going to a gym they would look at you like hmm it's kind of a waste of time (laughs) you know like you could be doing something. So that's my family of origin, right? So not only, you know, do I have this, this internal subset of, of, of skill sets, right? But then you're raised in this fertile soil of like, just shoulder to the grindstone, keep working hard, keep producing, don't think about yourself, right? So many of us can start peeling this back from many places of why it all comes together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, for me, it was a very traumatic childhood that was very chaotic. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. like, for me, it was like, keep your head down, be perfect, be yep. good. And you won't get any fire. You won't get noticed. Yeah. Just like stay on there. And, and, and I was talking to actually my brother about this this week and I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is like, it made me a surgeon like yep. that in the Midwest work ethic, mm-hmm. right? like <laughs> boom, surgeon right there. And so I was telling him, I'm like, yeah, I think my shtick in childhood was like, be good, be perfect, keep your head down, don't get don't get hit by any fire. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah. That was, <laughs> that was, and I'm very Absolutely. very close with my brother, right? And yeah. for him, and he uh, he speaks a lot of this language. And for him to like see it and to be like, oh yeah, yeah, no, that was what you that was how you that's why you got there. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, again, to be able to see it and to be like it'll make you super successful, then it'll be your demise. Exactly. Exactly. If you let it keep running its trajectory, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't know that there's, I mean, if you think about it, anyone that's put on any trajectory in life, right? Unless they catch themselves to change the course, there will be a demise because they're either on a trajectory of going down or they're on a trajectory of going up, right? So all of us as humans, whether we're surgeons or whoever we are, unless we have moments in our lives that kind of take us and set us aside for a pause of, is this the course you want to stay on? You know, I mean, people, people who are substance abuse, right. Or, or whatever, if if they want to keep on that trajectory, I mean, it's going to be their demise until they sit and take, take a, an assessment that they want to change. Right. It's the same thing for those of us who are working, 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 working to a point that you can no longer go at that pace or, or at that emotional cost. Right. And, and that will be your demise. So it's, it's, it's part of that. How do we, how do you live that breath of that human experience to really, to take an assessment of who is it you want to be? Who is that future self? Yeah, totally. I didn't want to be 250 pounds eating chocolate bars in the middle of the night and crying because my life looked perfect on the outside and was absolutely 
falling apart inside, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's amazing how just looking at like weight loss, like how successful the mind work approach is. Mm -hmm. And and what I hear a lot of is people are like, I've tried everything else. Like they're finally like, fine. <laughs> like, right. If it, if it worked any other way, I would have figured it out by now. Yeah. Well, because so, you know, until you change your brain, it's not going to stay off the life. Right. Because everything else is just a willpower to your habits. And your habits come from thought patterns you've created. And then they become just um, uh, like, what am I trying to say? Like a uh, below, below uh, infratentorial habits. I'm, I can't come up with the word right now. Like but, subconscious. Uh, subconscious. There we go. <laughs> you know, below, below the great man. In the lingula area or whatever. Happens to be in a bunch of positions. <laughs> like subconscious. That would be within the word. <laughs> um but then they become subconscious, but until you really, you know, and that's where all you'll get the people that like, well, Weight Watchers worked until it didn't <laughs> because we didn't change our thinking around it. We didn't change our relationship with ourselves or our thoughts that created the feelings that then we go to our trying to feel better, right? Our dopamine hit, which is the refined food or for addicts, it's their alcohol or their drugs or for, you know, sex addicts, it's the, the pornography or, I mean, we all have our dopamine hit or two of choice. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think it's so interesting because we want somebody else to tell us what to do. We want somebody else to be the authority. And then at the end of the day, we're the authority and we want to throw a little bit of a fit over that. But once you real like the true people who realize like, oh, I'm the authority of my life, like they sail. I get to choose. So it's so much power. Once you once you realize you have the power, it's so much power. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Once you can, you know, once you can sit back, take that big, deep breath and kind of ground your feet and say, oh, I get to actually own it all. Like I get to own the success and I get to drive it. And actually I'm not really dependent on anyone. It is so freeing. So freeing. Then you're like, what am I going to do with this one great life? Yeah. And I think that was the thing that I learned through the weight loss was, um, I mean, it felt great to have the, the, the actual pounds off my body, but it was, there was, there's nothing like living in a committed relationship with yourself. It's it, there is nothing like it. I love that. Mm -hmm. so yeah. I yeah. quit, I quit drinking alcohol probably like a year and a half ago now. I think most people so you feel amazing. I'll never drink again. Yeah. I'm to the point. I then that was not part of the plan. The plan was just six months because six months yeah. seemed hard enough. <laughs> and um, I had I not had coaching tools, mm -hmm. it would have that would have I would have never even thought that that was a curious thing to try. Yeah. <laughs> like, but I'm like, I have enough tools now that this seems hard. Where's my next challenge? What can I try? try it? This is what you do with urges. This is what I do with the thoughts that I have. Mm -hmm. This is what I do with, like, I have the tools. So like, you know, it, it's hard to know how much your life will change once you start having yeah. these tools. Like I would have never projected like three years in, you wouldn't be in, ever be interested in alcohol. I'd be like, yeah. what? That's not the Kelly I know. <laughs> she doesn't, who is that girl? She likes wine. <laughs> like. I know. I used to too. I love Napa. I almost took a job there. It's amazing. <laughs> I know. But yeah, it's yeah. like these tools, they're so universal that you like, you don't know where they're going to, um, 
yeah. where they're going to help. Yeah. Well, and that's where how, you know, it, it's really, it's taking, and I would, I would give anyone this advice. It's, it, it doesn't seem possible, but it really is like every time you think you've hit the ceiling and like, well, I can't, I can't make any other change. Like nothing else can happen. This can't happen. It's like, yeah, you hit the ceiling and something else happens. Right. So you get to decide what it is you want to do. So, you know, we did the weight thing. Then I, I did leadership stuff, made a bunch of changes there. And then I got to leadership and I was like, I think I've done that enough now. So now I'm going to move on to something else. So thank you. I mean, for an exit and I love my clinical medicine and coaching. So here we go. And now what we've done is I've sat back with my group and it's like, I love working, but I want to keep working. I don't want to burn out when I'm 50. So what we did is um, through kind of coaching and exploring some different and bringing it objectively and sitting because you know, I had all these different ideas and thoughts and how can we make it happen? So what's the action plan to do it, to get that result of not burning out is we've sat down with the partners and starting next year, we get 10 weeks of vacation every year. And I get a three month sabbatical every four years because then you can keep else is wondering why they can't hire when you can. Right. Yeah. And so you start doing this and you guys, I mean, I know you're sitting maybe on the outside being like, but that's not possible. Well, you can actually get to where, and I know this sounds completely woo-woo, but like, no, actually it is. And anything is really possible, right? But you have to decide what is that result you want in life. And you are never going to keep getting new results or evolving until you keep asking that person, right? Like, here's where I am now. And I'm going to tell you where you are now is going to have a lot of shitty things too. (laughs) Life happens. (laughs) My life isn't a, a, a panacea at all by any means, right? But it allows you to give the tools to, um, so I, this last month I've been going through a, um, addiction with one of my brothers and he tried to take his life and I was the one that caught it. So it's been a stressful month. And it's, I, I said, without coaching, I could not sit there and say, I feel a hundred percent confident that I have zero regret of who I've been going through all this. But at the same time, I hold in my other hand, deep sadness, deep sorrow, deep misery for him. And so it's, it's learning that piece of life of how do you get the amazing things to happen, but life is still going to happen. And how do you get to decide that you're being the person that you want to be a hundred fully percent, but that might not mean you're going to be happy or feel great. You don't need to think yourself happy in situations, right? Right. Yeah. Well, I think that's like, you know, intro to coaching 101 is like, just get it, get to where I'm happy, where shit doesn't, where shit doesn't bother me. <laughs> right. And it's like, yeah. you're still like, you still got the hardware of the human. Yeah. And human life is still going to happen. It's chaotic. Remember entropy, right? There is always going to be chaos. So as soon as you think that you've got your things together, the world's going to move around you chaotically and you're going to have reactions to it. But you get to decide what is your reaction going to be rather than feeling like you're a victim to it. Right. And when chaos happens, instead of, to me, like I like the coaching of like boil it down to like, what is the basic, like what is the basic tenant of coaching? And to me, it's like fighting with reality. Mm-hmm. It always comes back to me. Like I'm fighting with reality. I'm yep. fighting with re- oh, this is me fighting with reality. Like it's a basic tenant for me. Mm-hmm. Like when the chaos comes, like 
this patient's pissed, this nurse is out sick, this Medicare is fucking cutting us again by 4.8% next year. Like, this is what's happening. It's what's happening. What yep. are we going to do about it? What's my response? What's, what's the response? What are we going to do? Mm-hmm. Because wishing it wasn't so burns a bunch of brain calories that yep. doesn't move you in, in any sort of direction. I would say it's like sitting in a rocking chair and chewing gum. <laughs> you get nowhere. <laughs> You think you're really busy. <laughs> and it might feel good for a while. It might feel good, right? It might, you know. Yeah. So. Uh, thanks so much for chatting. Yo, it's been great. That's everybody's attention, so. Apparently we must have been entertaining yeah, somehow. We, at least we were entertaining. <laughs> yeah. awesome. Oh, well, thank you for having me on, Kelly. I loved it. This was awesome. I appreciate it, really. Yeah. So if anyone needs anything, reach out, let me know, let me know through Kelly. Um, You're in a common thread, big Facebook group too, right? uh, The certified coach group? Well, that, but we're like the big Facebook group for surgeons that we have is the common thread. Oh, no, I'm not in that. Oh, come on. Just join it. I'll I'll join it. I'll do it. We post memes, (laughs) basically. I'll have to, I'll, I'll hop on it. I'll get on it when we get off. Cool, cool. All right, everybody. Okay. Thanks, Thanks, Kelly. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Bye-bye.